Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. Broadcasting from Brisbane in the repressive state of Australia, where journalistic freedom is fast disappearing, this is The FOMO Show. I'm Matt, a technology lawyer. And I'm Joe, an IT marketer. And this is a non-state endorsed fortnightly podcast where we talk about the exciting ideas changing the world today and what might keep you out of jail tomorrow. Uh, we'll, stay, we'll help you stay across what's going on so you don't get the fear of missing out. You can find us at FOMO.show or by searching for The FOMO Show on your platform of choice. Now, everything in the show is in the show notes. You can find links to the stuff we're talking about and timestamps to the relevant parts so you can always skip ahead or you can find it later. Now, this episode, we're going to be covering a fair bit of news. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Australia cracking down on journalism. We're also going to be talking about uh, EOS's Block One, uh, One June event and all the different announcements that came out of that. Mm, we're going to be talking about the big banks' uh, ripple killer and potentially some local Bitcoin's competitors now that local Bitcoin's has started to quietly remove in-person cash trades. We're also going to look at uh, what's happened with local Bitcoins recently and some alternatives if you still do want to buy your Bitcoins face-to-face. Yeah, in privacy and security, we're going to talk about Unroll.me, which is a really cool way of unsubscribing from all of those newsletters that you signed up for and didn't really mean to. Yeah, just to clear your inbox out a bit. And in their feature, we're really excited for this one. We're going to start a series on geopolitics. So over the next few episodes, we're going to talk all sorts of different areas of geopolitics will hone in, but for this first feature, we're going to talk about what's going on in the trade wars between primarily China, America, and Russia, and also how Africa, India, and a few other countries and regions play into that. Yeah, really excited to get this one off the road, and um, yeah, really excited to deep dive in on, on the next few episodes after this one. Finally, we will chat with our intrepid reporter, Jordan Cronier. He's, uh, he's popped back up. And he's in a quite an interesting location, so um, mm. look forward to that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, let's let's dive into it. So, what have you been up to in the last couple of weeks, mate? I actually recently made a discovery that um, I was an alcoholic. Really? Yeah. So I was um, cleaning my room. I, for some reason, decided to clean my room, and I put all stacked all the bits and pieces by the bin, by uh, for the bin by my door, mm. and I actually saw a horrific number of bottles, and <laughs> it actually made it almost brought me to tears because I hadn't cleaned my room in about two and a half weeks, which is filthy. Don't get me mm. wrong, mm. but I saw uh, there was I filled an entire 
bag for life, you know, those recycling bags for yeah. going to the supermarket. Yeah. Filled an entire one of those with empty bottles. And how long have these bottles been in your room for? Like what, what kind only, of time period only, are we talking about? We're talking about two, two and a half weeks. However, you know, I'm not like, you know, professional alcoholic, but I, it was enough for me to actually completely wake up and realize that I had a real problem. Wow. Like a real problem. And okay. So I played the clip from Jordan Peterson. Uh, if you're familiar with him, the Canadian clinical psychologist, brilliant talk speaker, mm. really calculated with his words. Hey, I played his clip on clean your room because your your room is what he says is the, the physical manifestation of your personality or of yourself. Jeez. And I realized that because that was what my room was made up of, that was what I was becoming. So what does it say about me that I've got – six or seven computer screens in my room right now. And you also have 300 tabs open, dude. Yeah. Uh, and my room is actually quite messy. But when I say my room, I study. Like my wife, the rest of the house is pretty clean. But yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, Microcosm of my life. Well, that's, I mean, so what have you, what, what have you done about it? Because Jordan Peterson's big on essentially if you see something like that, Clean like your room. That is yep. the that is the core of it. It's cleaning my room now. Okay. It's a real problem, dude. Because I didn't even realize I'd fallen into that habit. And um, yeah, so I've been. It was actually my girlfriend was telling me some, giving me some really useful advice about it. But the main thing was she was actually giving me some Jordan Peterson advice, which is actually to find something that is more valuable to you, more valuable to the world than drinking is. And you need to fill your time with that because drinking is great. And that's what Jordan Peterson said. And he said, it's great. So you need to find something that's better. Mm. And you had an idea about that, didn't you? Yeah. So I'm thinking of doing a few different things, but one of them is actually uh, reading audiobooks free of charge for causes that I'm actually really interested in. Uh, one of which is the anarchist libertarian movement. And so that means for our listeners that they get to listen to you read not only the podcast but also audiobooks which i think i mean i'm at least looking forward to it because <laughs> you've got the perfect voice i mean we've said it before but you've got the perfect voice for radio oh, so man, that's very that will be amazing but, uh, but yeah so, so yeah there was that the other thing was we have a little chat group for some of the people that we used to work with both you and i the, the firm that we used to work at we both used to work at the same law firm um mm. now we had a chat about 5g and its effect on our health and I, straight after that, I actually rewatched this lecture by this physicist called Paul Ben Ishai, who's a PhD physicist on the, the potential effects of 5G to human health. Now, um, he's a physicist, not a physiologist, but really, really interesting. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes. I watched that back in 2017, but it absolutely inspired me on the actual potential dangers of 5G and the fact that it can really impact our health. And it's not some sort of, you know, kooky, crazy mm. stuff. It's actually that there are some very real effects of submillimeter waves, mm, and there's a, there's a lot of peer reviewed material around that too. If if, mm. if you don't have to dig very far to find a huge amount of research, and I mean, yeah, that that whole chat. I mean, you know, we've obviously got a, a new little one in the house, and according to the research, apparently the effects are worse on you know small children. So it's actually prompted my wife and I to discuss whether we really want to be living you know, close to some of these towers or whether it's worth us relocating somewhere a little bit further out. So, wow. yeah, if you are interested in this, and I think everyone should be at least to be informed about this because no one's talking about it, obviously. They're only talking about the benefits. Definitely go watch that link and there's a number of other places you can jump off from that link. And if you can't find them, just 
reach out to us in Telegram and we can shoot you a few more links too. And do send any links that you come across uh, into our Telegram because other people who are listening to the show would love to see it. Definitely, definitely. Mm. So what else What else have you been up to? Um, I've just been <laughs> adjusting to life as a father, mate. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, not not getting a lot of sleep. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's a, a very wise person said to me a few weeks ago that uh, your life is not your own once you become a father, and it's 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 definitely true. It's definitely true. But it's wow. it's awesome. Like I, we wouldn't have it any other way. But it's yeah, it's just been a bit of an adjustment. So <laughs> uh, it's it's great. So there's been that, and that's been obviously most of my life the last couple of weeks. But mm-hmm. I'm also talking at a. Uh, uh, an event this Friday uh, that the Queensland Law Society is putting on. It's about mm. basically like a legal innovation event and I'm mm. um, talking on the future of legal practice, which wow. should be really cool. Amazing. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. So what have you been reading or listening to? I've still been working my way through understanding our slavery, which we talked about last week uh, or last episode. And, and that's a free-to-access PDF about understanding the government and the systems around us, right? Exactly. Yeah, it kind of looks at the history of uh, governance and kind of works through where we got to in our modern world and, and basically shows a number of the ways in which these systems have been built up and there's all sorts of propaganda around these systems and what they really mean. And oh, it, It's a really well-researched, well-done book. There's a few bits that, I mean, we've both talked about off air that we think maybe the author got a little bit wrong, mm-hmm. um, but overall, yeah, the message is great. Yeah. There's some awesome little like two-page almost uh, like, handout sort of things. Yeah, yeah, which which are brilliant. Like they kind of just pick a topic and drill down into that topic, throw some stats at you, throw some things you probably didn't know, and you can basically just post them somewhere and show people a small snippet for each topic. Mm. So, yeah, definitely, I mean, I've been enjoying that. Like we did last episode, I recommend checking it out. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. The worst that will happen is you'll read it and say I don't agree with it, but at the very least it'll be thought-provoking. What have you been up to? Well, sorry, uh, what have you been reading? So I've been listening to Darknet Diaries, which is a podcast mm. that we've discussed before, and I absolutely love it. The, uh, Jack Resider, who runs the podcast, he's got such an incredible like, – he's got such an incredible production value on his stories. He's a great mm. storyteller. It's stories – from the dark web, stories about hackers or things like that that are happening. Uh, it was actually one of the podcasts that he recommended on his, you know, similar, I think it was, there's a link on his website, it's called Similar Podcasts. But there was a an episode that he linked to about the Silk Road, which is the underground drug marketplace. And he linked to that on Case File Podcast, really, really interesting podcast. So I listened to part one of it. And it was really well done. So, yeah, fascinating little story. So, yeah, I thought it was worth sharing. Yeah, okay, awesome. I'll have to listen to it. I haven't actually even been on his site and looked at the similar podcast. So yeah, I actually – If he recommends them, I'm pretty keen to, mm. <laughs> to have a listen to because mm. I'm such a big fan of Darknet Diaries. Joe, is this podcast – investment or any other type of advice? This podcast is not investment, it's not legal, it's not taxation, it's not medical, it's not surgical, any of that. It's not any kind of relationship, any of this. It's not any kind of advice. We're not saying you should buy anything at all. So for full disclosure, Matt and I, we're both personally invested in different shares, different funds, cryptocurrencies, some of which we talk about on the show. Yeah, but if we talk about an investment product or any other type of product, it doesn't mean you should buy it. So 
do your research, never invest more than you can afford to lose, and most importantly, avoid the fear of missing out. So we're doing a giveaway. We're giving away a Coin Storage Guru Safe Words kit. Now, this is a kit where it's a physical kit set of three cards where you write your seed phrase. So for your um, hardware wallets or for any kind of cryptocurrency wallets, you can put that 24 word or whatever word uh, seed phrase. You write two thirds of your seed phrase on three different cards, which means with any two cards, you can put together your entire seed phrase, but with any one card, you can't do anything. So it's a great way of securing your backups of your cryptocurrency wallets. Yeah, we've got a number of these in the kitty. So we're giving one away each episode. So let us know if you'd like one, swing us a message, and we'll send you a Coin Storage Guru Safe Words kit if you are the lucky first person. Yeah, Yeah, if you're the first person to ask for one. You're going to get one, so let us know. If you're new around here and new to cryptocurrency, you can check out our Blockchain Basics series. It starts from episode two and continues on until episode eight. And it will give you some grounding in the fundamentals and help you understand what on earth we're talking about when we talk about some of these crypto topics. All right, let's get into the news. And right up front, let's not waste any time. Let's move to what's been going on in Australia the last couple of weeks. Australia's cracking down on journalism. Now, this is a piece that comes out of sydneycriminallawyers.com.au and they're talking about the Australian Federal Police raids on journalists, how laws against terrorism and espionage are actually being used in practice. Yeah, so around the globe, people are embracing the digital age but in Australia, at least they're saying the government doesn't want you to be informed. So so if you didn't catch it over the last couple of weeks, and if you live outside of Australia, you can be forgiven for this. But if you live in Australia, look, have you been living under a rock? Because the Australian Federal Police raided not only the home of the News Corp journalists, they also raided the offices of the Australian Broadcasting Commission this week. Now, the ABC is basically like our government-funded journalist arm, like a a government-funded news arm, but typically they actually operate quite independently of the agendas of the government themselves. Yeah, the story so far, so this News Corp journalist, Anika Smethurst, published a story last year about these how proposed new powers would allow some intelligence agencies within the Australian government to spy on the general public. So it included some primary source material, which also included some correspondence between politicians. Now, the raid on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation concerned a series of stories known as the Afghan Files, which details incidents of troops, Australian troops, killing unarmed men and children uh, in Afghanistan. Now, officers during the raid took away two USB drives containing about 100 files. And yeah, pretty crazy stuff. So when they were talking about the raid, a statement they issued basically said that the unauthorised disclosure of those specific documents undermined Australia's national security. And that's why the raid apparently was conducted. But this is not unprecedented. I mean, the decision to raid a journalist's home over national security reporting has happened before. I mean, in October last year, the Australian Federal Police raided the Department of Home Affairs in Canberra, the capital of Australia, to establish the source of leaks against uh, one of these uh, ministers in relation to his interventions to save certain people from deportation. But the concerning thing is that these raids are sending a message to journalists saying you can't report on anything unless it puts the government in a bad light. And yeah, anyone who leaks or publishes this classified information can be sent to prison. Now, you might look at this and you might think, wow, okay, well, this is this is concerning, but 
don't we have a constitution that protects against this and don't we have human rights? And uh, the reality is in Australia that we don't really. Uh, there's no Bill of Rights. The constitution doesn't really enshrine a lot of the basic human rights that are enshrined under like the UN um, Charter for Human Rights, for example. And it also contributes to a trend that we are seeing in Australia in our particular instance here, but also I guess in the rest of the Western world that governments are starting to erode a number of freedoms that were kind of held by common law to be valid and beginning to impede not just the freedoms of journalists, but others. And basically saying that unless you report on what we think is in the public interest, and unless you are fully compliant with what we do, then there are going to be consequences. And what really struck a chord with these raids, and first of all, the raid of the journalists and the raid of the ABC officers, is that they came only like a week or two after the government won an election that they did not think they were going to win. Basically, the thing is with with that is that Scott Morrison, the, the Prime Minister, denied that there was any government connection at all. Hmm. He said, oh, this was completely conducted by the AFP. There was, there was no – it wasn't done at our behest. Uh, we didn't ask them to do it, but – it's it's really difficult when the subject matter that brought this about was published like two years ago you know, or one year ago. Mm. Uh, and then the moment an election is won, it was almost like it struck me. I know it's not to the same level, but you know how the when the Nazis won power back in like 1933 or whenever, oh, it might have been earlier than that, right. pretty much like the, the a few months later the cleanses started, you know, and there was Kristallnacht and all that kind of stuff. But it was, mm. kind, it was basically like... We're in, we've got the power, now let's start to use it. And mm. until that point when there was a bit more give and take, they didn't really flex their muscles. Mm. And, you know, we're seeing a similar thing here and we've seen this with the – we covered the AA bill earlier on in this year or it might have even been last year. Mm. Uh, there's other changes. Joe and I were discussing off camera the way that people trying to migrate to Australia or maybe refugees can have identity documents taken from them if there's a suspicion that they may be illegitimate and not given back and they can end up languishing for a couple of years and if they are found to be false, under Australian law, the only recourse for the government is to permanently detain that person and keep them in prison essentially for a false identity document. Yeah, we're just across the board there's some really concerning developments going on here and a real lack of due process as well. Yikes. Well, um, well, with that in mind, let's crack on with, uh, with some of the Bitcoin news from the last two weeks. Yeah, sorry, mate. I went a little bit far down the rabbit hole there. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's life, mate. <laughs> First piece of Bitcoin news, everyone is hodling Bitcoin. Only 1.3% of transactions were payments in 2019 thus far. Chainalysis has done some analysis on all the Bitcoin transactions and They've found that only 1.3% of transactions that basically involve Bitcoin have happened on-chain. The remaining 98.7% of volume is all on the exchanges, which means it's being traded a lot more than it's being spent or exchanged on the actual Bitcoin blockchain itself. So that means what? No one's using Bitcoin to buy things and um, what? They're just trading. Yeah, basically. like It, it seems like the, the vast majority of transactions trading transactions and speculative transactions rather than actual transactions between people. Huh. I guess it's not it's not surprising in a way considering that there are a, a large amount of high volume traders who basically mm -hmm. their day job is trading in between Bitcoin 
Ethereum, US dollar, tethered US dollar, whatever it is. That would skew the transaction percentages if you're making a few trades a day. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, like, I mean, if you've got a whole bunch of buy orders and sell orders set and some of them are activating and a number of people are doing that, then mm-hmm. it probably makes sense mm-hmm. that most of that transactional volume is happening on exchanges because that's where you're the traders are and mm. that's where you're trading in between different currency pairs. Let's jump into the second piece of news. The world's second and fourth biggest shipping companies have joined Maersk's blockchain platform. Yeah, so we've covered this on and off throughout the show and I think we last discussed this in episode 35 and we said basically that things didn't seem to be panning out for Maersk uh, and some of their competitors were having a bit more success trying to get their worldwide blockchain off the ground. But it seems like two global shipping firms, so Mediterranean Shipping Co. and CMA CGM, have joined the blockchain shipping platform TradeLens, which is what Maersk are doing with IBM, as reported by Routers on Routers on May 28. Yeah, so the world's largest logistics company, Maersk, and the tech giant IBM created this blockchain platform. And what this was intended to do, this is called TradeLens, and it intended to reduce paperwork and the associated costs and time in the logistics industry, and which reportedly accounts for about $4 trillion, with over 80% of goods in the world carried by the ocean shipping sector. By joining the platform, MSC and CMACGM will have almost 50% of all cargo shipped by sea tracked using distributed ledger technology. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Because on one hand, you look at this and you say, well, you know, is it really a blockchain or is it just a distributed ledger? But on another hand, you can you f- you can absolutely look at this now and paired with Walmart's um, food trust, mm. and you can say that a number of the world's largest companies are really using blockchain technology in their supply chains. This is actually really big because I mean. Uh, we discussed this back in the day, so check out the previous episodes on Maersk that we where we talked about this, but. You've got all of these approvals to going through ports, all of this documentation, all this paperwork, and bringing it into one place is actually a great solution. Mm. A lot of people are saying, oh, blockchain's not being used for anything, but this is pretty huge. I mean, this mm. is a massive amount of the world's cargo is now being tracked on the blockchain. Yeah, and look, if these guys are using it, then it's going to make more sense for a lot of the people in these supply chains to jump on board and start using it as well, particularly if it's built well. Like if these guys have jumped on on the same platform that a number of a number of their competitors seem to be using and pushing, it must only be for the reason that it makes commercial sense mm. and it's they can derive some significant benefit from it. So it looks like all the talk about blockchain enabling these big you know, companies to come on a, a almost a level playing field and have everything out in the open and automate some of these processes in a meaningful way is coming to fruition. I guess, I guess we'll just have to keep watching and see if five years down the track they're still using the platform or if they've gone off to something else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So really exciting stuff. Couple pieces of news relate to EOS. Now, EOS, we're massive fans of it. We've discussed EOS since episode two. Huge fans of it. So, for anybody who doesn't know, EOS is sort of the. They claimed when they started that they were going to deliver on the promises of Ethereum. So, Ethereum is a sort of like a cryptocurrency that has a smart contracts 
ecosystem underlying it. Now, mm. EOS is a high-speed blockchain ecosystem, and it has zero costs for executing smart contracts for end users. So what that means, if Matt and I create a little app for buying pizzas and splitting the cost of pizzas, we as the app owners pay to get the resources to build this app, but then any of our users don't actually have to pay anything at all. Exactly. Yeah. So it kind of mimics the cloud-based model that we have now with servers. You know, on EOS, you we as the app creators would essentially rent or lease RAM, they call it. So mm. RAM like you have in computers and we lease that RAM and you get that RAM entitles us to a certain amount of computing power per second on the network. Mm-hmm. But if let's say it didn't pan out and we decided, oh, the app's done, we could then just sell that RAM back to the network and the lease ends essentially mm-hmm. and someone else starts leasing that RAM. So it's a really interesting pay-as-you-go method for the people, the content creators essentially, mm-hmm. the people running the apps, but the users themselves don't pay any fees. Whereas on Ethereum and Bitcoin and a whole bunch of other blockchains, you have to pay the transaction fees mm-hmm. and you're always losing a little bit every time you use things. Yeah. So now EOS is the most used blockchain of all of the blockchains there, it's used for a lot of the gambling applications, a lot of, uh, well, actually gambling is actually the majority of things. There's a few <laughs> games that run on it. But the big news from the last few weeks, we saw this and it said that EOS is now available on Coinbase, which is the, the most popular, basically the most well-known or the most user-friendly exchange in the mm. world. Mm. Yeah, and up to this stage, it really only been Bitcoin and Ethereum derivatives. Um, mm. that have been offered on Coinbase. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that they've done this. I mean, they've timed it very well with their big event, the uh, Block June 1 event. That happened a couple of days later. Mm. Yeah. So, well, let's go into this Block 1 event. Block 1 of the creators of EOS, and they've announced on the one-year anniversary of the EOS mainnet that they're going to launch a social media platform on the EOS blockchain called Voice. Yeah, so they announced this glitzy event that they had in Washington, D.C., and as Matt said, they called this platform Voice, and what they're saying is that they're not turning their users into products. So in the release, their CEO, Brendan Bloomer, said, you know, he said, our content, our data, our attention, these are incredibly valuable things. But right now, it's the platform, i.e. Facebook or Twitter, not the user that reaps the reward. So by design, These companies run by auctioning our information to advertisers, taking the profits and flooding our feeds with hidden agendas, 100%, dictated by the highest bidder. And voice, their social network, changes that. Yeah, and look, if you've heard this before, it's probably because you've used Steemit. And and this is almost uh, Dan Larimer, the creator of uh, Steemit and also the technical developer on EOS, has always said that he's going to build Steemit 2.0. So what is Steemit? Yeah, so Steemit's essentially like a... If you ever use Medium, Medium's like a blogging platform where you can post your blog up and yeah. it'll be basically there's a great user experience. Uh, the fonts are all amazing. Love the fonts. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Medium will promote certain authors and you can get remunerated for your uh, your articles based on how many claps you get and all sorts of different things. But that's run by Medium. So that's run by an actual company. Steemit is like that, but a little bit more decentralized. So they essentially created a blockchain. And Dan, this was Dan Larimer's baby. And then it put a social media blogging platform on top of that blockchain. Yep. So where so you could get paid in Steam 
uh, which is the currency on Steam at for putting your articles up. You would be, you write an article, you could get paid from the upvotes on your article or if you comment on somebody's article, if your comment gets upvoted a bunch and people like it, you get recognised with actual cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah, and that crypto you can then take to an exchange and exchange for real dollars and cash out. And there were some people who were literally making a living on Steemit just through using the platform and people paying them with their Steam. So really interesting. I mean, every every single action too was an action on a blockchain, a distributed ledger where you know, every action was recorded and recorded forever. So this is kind of the, the natural successor to that on a far broader blockchain ecosystem called EOS. Now, EOS raised, what, $4 billion in funding and I definitely contributed to some of that, not anywhere near that much but um mm. i i got in on this i think matt got in on this but um yep. eos had so much of a promise but it's taken them quite a while to tell us about what they want to be building the ceo of this company said look social media has not been a good friend to us they want to they've got a huge amount of money to put into this social media product and they're saying look algorithms aren't going to decide what dominates everyone's going to have an equal shot to be heard and you get rewarded yeah, so it's it's going to be really interesting. Obviously, this whole alternative social media market is getting quite crowded. There's a number of other products out there. But Steemit really filled a little, a great little niche and was getting quite popular. They got mired in a bit of controversy and a lot of people had left the project, like Dan. And a lot of other people knew of EOS and were kind of hanging out for this. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if this takes off, how it takes off. And I think we're going to have to open up a FOMO show account on voice once it launches mm, mm-hmm. i've already signed up for it you can sign up for it i think it's voice.com they bought the domain yeah. must have cost them a fair amount but um yeah i this is going to be the only social network apart from linkedin that i use mm. now in the same event they actually brought on stage a product lead from ubico they make this product called YubiKey. so for example if you wanted to log into your account let's say your email account and for work to ensure that it's you that's logging in you'd have to physically plug in this usb device this yubikey to your computer and that would authenticate um so it means that you have to have this specific device to be able to log in which is really really secure now eos have actually partnered with yubikey so they gave everyone in the audience a version of this eos yubikey but they've actually integrated with web auth n which is a passwordless standard which has been recently approved by the w3 consortium which governs the world wide web yeah and eos in general seem to be really trying to push forward a lot of these web standards and obviously get them integrated with their own products and get them integrated with the blockchain and just look at scatter like if you want to look at a really interesting integration between a blockchain and the web mm-hmm. look at the scatter wallet which runs in the browser which is just incredibly feature rich a lot more feature recent rich than metamask which is the ethereum equivalent mm-hmm. and uh they've they also announced in the same conference that they were also working at fleshing out the WebAssembly platform, which is come, came out of Mozilla's foundation. Mm-hmm. And th- that's another standard that Mozilla are trying to push forward. Really interesting uh, language for assembly on, on the web. Uh, I won't get into it too much, but Block One have apparently been one of the biggest contributors to that as well and are really trying to push that forward too. So uh, lo- it looks like a lot of this money is going to good use. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, they also announced that they're going to actually be speeding up EOS massively. I can't remember the exact number, but it was at least doubling 
the speed of this blockchain. So it's already the highest speed blockchain and it's just getting faster. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I remember it seeing 10 times somewhere in, mm. in, in they, yeah, it was interesting because they went into some of the technical challenges they've run into in scaling the network, but yeah, look, if, if you want to hear about all the different things, there's plenty of announcement threads out there. We'll link something in the show notes. But mm. just really cool to see like a, a, a someone that's been built as an Ethereum competitor actually competing and mm. doing a bunch of really interesting stuff. So next bit of news, big banks have announced that a fiat-pegged ripple killer crypto will be coming out for settlements. Yeah, so banking giants in the US, Japan, and across Europe have created a consortium that will use cryptocurrency technology in cross-border transfers. It presents a direct competitors for Ripple's XRP token. Yeah, so according to the Nikkei Asian Review, uh, large banking corporations in Japan like MUFG and Sumitomo have led their counterparts in the US and Europe to establishing what they're calling Finality International. So yeah, based in London, they'll create a cross-border settlement framework among participating banks that will utilize a fiat-pegged cryptocurrency, fiat being just regular money, pegged cryptocurrency. Yeah, and they're calling that fiat-pegged cryptocurrency, and they've raised about $63 million in funding for these, uh, utility settlement coins. So they're going to create an account for each of the banks, and they're going to have a one-to-one ratio with the underlying fiat currencies. So transfer originating in Japan and terminating in the US, the Japanese bank would essentially deposit the transaction amount in yen to Japan's central bank. And then on the other end, Finality will issue the equivalent number of USCs to the receiving bank in the US before converting to US dollars and sending that to the recipient's bank account. So uh, yeah, according to the Wall Street Journal, it will drastically reduce the cost of international payments by taking out third party intermediaries. Even though this finality sits in the middle, it will take out third parties. So apparently that actually is good. Yeah. I mean, it actually reminds me a lot of the pay ID system that we're, the Os- that OSCO are building here in Australia, which is kind of like another consortium between banks and Reserve Bank and all sorts of different things like that. I mean, I will admit it's made user experience for banking a lot better, but I don't know, this just sounds, does finality to you sound like just another Swift? Look, I really don't care enough. <laughs> um, it's, you know, when you just see banks doing stuff and you're like, look, if that helps you, bruv, you yeah. just be you my guest, you. but you do exactly, you yeah. do you, yeah. but I could not give two whatevers. Yeah, no, fair enough. So yeah, banks can continue to uh, optimize their processes so they can make more profits. Uh, Meanwhile, we will continue on with open source money and trying to completely remove monetary control from these very opaque and... Uh, shadowy financial institutions. Yeah, and reports indicate that this finality settlement platform will go begin operations sometime in 2020. So well, you know what? Very, very quickly. Good <clears throat> for them, you know? Yeah. Good for them. I'm, I'm glad that things are going to get a bit better for the banks. Oh, they need it. They need every mm. bit of help. They get. We should start a Kickstarter for them, mate. We like, should. Maybe a little GoFundMe or some oh, sort maybe of we a, could do it in USC. A in Patreon. Coin. Ooh, yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Move on fast. Mm. <laughs>
So next bit of news, uh, local Bitcoins have quietly removed in-person cash trades. Yeah, so local Bitcoins is one of the most popular peer-to-peer exchange and escrow services. And so a lot of people who've been in crypto for a while uh, will may have come across this product. It's basically so you can actually, let's say you've got money in your bank account and you can wire it to somebody and you go on this website and you say, hey, look, I've got 500 US dollars uh, in my account and I will send it to somebody who can give me you know, the same amount in Bitcoin. So they actually quietly removed the option for their users to trade Bitcoins for cash in person. And someone on Reddit discovered that. But um, yeah, they uh, that's actually been taken away. Yeah, so it, it's, there's obviously, well, we don't know, but the assumption is there's probably been some pressure from a regulator somewhere and instead of making a big song and dance about it, they've just removed the capability. But it's it's, yeah, it's unclear whether it's temporary or permanent. Um, they're yet to make an announcement. They may have made an announcement by the time this airs, but it already seems like some users are attempting to circumvent the removal through a variety of methods. Mm, um, so, yeah, ever since they confirmed they wouldn't support cash transactions anymore, um, crypto users have been looking for some other alternatives, and the Merkle.com actually put together a list of the top four local Bitcoins alternatives, and we've got one more to add on to that as well. Clearly, these guys have been the leader in a number of different ways, and they've been a famous platform for a while. So, yeah, there are four different platforms that the Merkle recommended um, as alternatives. The four different platforms are Local CoinSwap, Payfair, BitQuick, and BISC, which we'll put the links to in the show notes. I've just got one Local CoinSwap here. I haven't used it, but from their website, they're saying that you can actually buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dash, Monero, and Tether, and a bunch of other cryptocurrencies with 250 plus payment methods and no KYC. Yeah, so I mean, I opened the second one, which is Payfair. They basically are a decentralized escrow platform. So that means you send money to them uh, from your bank account or whatever, and then they'll the other person sends the crypto to you. And there's like an escrow system where they'll release it after both of you send the cash. Mm. Bit, Bitquick is the third one, um, which I haven't really looked into. Bisk, I have come across. Mm. Bisk is a beautiful website. It's an app that you can download for your computer, which is a decentralized exchange. Now, what it requires is all of these exchanges, they require what's called liquidity. So they actually require somebody also like being able to offer you Bitcoins or somebody being able to offer Australian dollars or US dollars or British pounds or whatever. So it all relies on the users. But BISC looks really nice. Like they've put a really nice attention mm. to their design, which I think is really important. So you can mm. actually download that app and uh, install it on your computer and it's completely decentralized. So there's no authority that controls it. There's no identity verification. You can transfer between cryptocurrencies on this, but there's also this bank feature that they've built into it, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. And look, I, I can personally vouch for Bisc. I've got the app on my PC here and it's great because you like you install it and then you open it up and basically the first thing it does, it connects to the Tor network. And it creates a node for you. On the, and so Tor Network is, uh, some people call it the dark web, but it's basically like a, a, way, a, a way to connect to the internet where a bunch of your information is masked. So you can essentially connect the internet through nodes. And so it's really nice. They basically take all these steps for you to guarantee your privacy even on the app. Not guarantee it, but to make your privacy a lot better and then allow a really user-friendly exchange of fiat currency for Bitcoin and yeah. other things. 
the last one that wasn't included in the article, but I heard of, of somebody who I know, uh, they recommended local.bitcoin.com, which means that you can buy Bitcoin cash, buy and sell it with anyone anonymously with no KYC. No, what that's no, your customer where you give your identity and all that stuff over. Now, on behalf of the furnisher, as we say, there is zero legal, financial, any kind of advice in your country. Stuff like this may or may not be legal, and we don't actually validate whether or not this is legal in your jurisdiction. So, purchasing cryptocurrency without identi identification. We can't vouch for whether that's legal or not, and we're not giving you any kind of advice. But there are a few different of these resources that are out there. So it's worth knowing about for educational mm. reasons. But, yeah, we absolutely do not we, – we can't vouch for whether this is legal or not. We're not endorsing any of these. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. just saying that they're there and because yeah. the important thing is, you know, if governments are cracking down on being able to access crypto without giving your ID across, because obviously tying your ID to your crypto accounts – is really useful for governments. Now, in some countries, this may not be legal, but it's worth knowing that yep. these are ways that many people are using to access cryptocurrency without having to give their identity and personal information out, so without compromising their security. Mm, exactly right. The British Broadcasting Corporation, they went to conduct their first broadcast over 5G and they immediately hit their data cap. <laughs> How good is that? That's awesome. Yeah, like, all the extra speed and bandwidth of 5G is going to make it really hard to say within your monthly data limits. And BBC discovered that when they used EE. Uh, so one Which of is UK's... everything everywhere. They're like a okay. big, a big UK. Uh, it's like the equivalent of Telstra or uh, Verizon. Right. Okay. So they fired up their 5G network in six UK cities and basically had a BBC reporter, Rory Sellen Jones, do a live report during its BBC breakfast program that was streamed over their network. Yeah. So Rory Sellen Jones, he runs their like technology sort of segments. Yeah. He's kind of a famous character in England. But yeah, right. you can watch the segment. Basically, the quality of the image was amazing. There was no compression artifacts, hiccups, random freezes, and all that stuff. But the 5G networks aren't perfect. So while testing one of the few 5G capable smartphones, which is currently available, they found the connection speed went up and down depending on where he stood which is, you know, that problem will go down once 5G towers become go everywhere and you're completely bathed in submillimeter radiation. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, there will be better coverage in the future once they're completely bathing you in it. But, yeah. Mm. I, I mean, I, I love 5G baths just quietly. But, um, yeah, look, the, the BBC breakfast segment is actually delayed by 15 minutes when the cellular equipment that they were using to stream also suddenly stopped working. Uh, but it wasn't a problem with the 5G network. The SIM card, which they used for the live stream, had simply reached their data cap. So that's a problem that many people are going to experience when they start streaming 4K Netflix movies on their phones every morning on their commutes to work. So <laughs> mm, well, pretty jokes. <laughs> So Walmart are joining a pharmaceutical tracking blockchain consortium called MediLedger. So the big box retail giant Walmart has joined MediLedger, which is a consortium building a blockchain for tracking the provenance of pharmaceuticals. Now, a spokeswoman for Walmart has confirmed that they're participating, but haven't, they haven't really given us anything else. But it represents a deepening of their involvement in blockchain technology in general because they are a key participant in IBM's Food Trust. And we've talked about this before. It's a system for tracking 
fresh produce through the supply chain and it's built on Hyperledger. Yeah, so Walmart actually insisted that their suppliers of leafy greens uh, integrate the IBM blockchain and they're actually bringing a similar sort of clout to MediLedger. So the members already include uh, in MediLedger pharmaceutical manufacturers such as Pfizer and the three largest pharmaceutical wholesalers, McKesson, Amerisource Virgin, and Cardinal Health. So, I mean, any of our listeners will know there's an opioid crisis going on at the moment. There's a huge black market for uh, prescription pharmaceuticals in the US. So this is actually really, really interesting. Yeah, so health and wellness, which is a category that includes pharmacy and over-the-counter drugs, accounted for $35 billion of Walmart's mm. US sales mm. in the fiscal year, which is 10% of their total sales. So unlike Food Trust, uh, MediLedger uses an enterprise version of the Ethereum blockchain, so not IPM's Hyperledger, and it's built with a modified version of the Parity client. And Parity, interesting because they're in a number of different consortiums around the world right now. And uh, there's also a consensus mechanism called proof of authority, which essentially, proof of Mm. authority essentially means that if you can prove that you have authority to be on chain and you have authority to be one of the miners or the block producers on that chain, you can produce a block. So there's cryptographic methods involved in proving that you're authorized to be writing the blocks as opposed to, say, proof of work, which is... Anyone can write blocks, but you have to have the compute power to be able to, you know, win the privilege. Walmart join as MediLedger prepare to kick off a pilot project with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, in early June. So the agency is testing a a number of different approaches to creating an interoperable digitized system for tracking and verifying prescription drugs, something that Congress has mandated that the FDA deliver by 2023. So really important for like public health. Mm. So yet another distributed ledger <laughs> use yeah. in the um in the supply chain. This is a big episode for that because I mean the third piece of news we covered Maersk that like half the world shipping is now on the blockchain. Yeah, isn't it interesting? I- I've been thinking about this recently about blockchain versus cryptocurrency and and the dynamic we've got going on and how I mean, you can even see it with our podcast. You know, we started with a passion for cryptocurrency, and and that kind of morphed into a into a more general blockchain focus. But I mean, you, you, they really are two very, very different in, in in their implementation. The way they're being implemented now, there really is two very, very different ways that blockchains, quote unquote, are being implemented. There's the cryptocurrency public. Uh, blockchain, which is mm. you know, obviously spearheaded by Bitcoin, and there's you've got Ethereum and EOS and a number of the others, and they're all focused on like public money and then using that money in different ways. And then blockchain, like we're talking about it here in the private world, they are using quote unquote blockchain as a distributed database, which allows the exchange of information uh, and potentially tokenized money between conglomerates and market participants but on different software, on different hardware setups, uh, using different consensus mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting this divergence. Like we're, we're seeing what started as kind of like one technology now diverge very significantly into two completely different use cases and, and both of them look very different. Mm. Do you know, I think the one thing that we can take away from this is it's really important for everybody. Um, it goes off this this talk that I was just telling Matt about that I went to last week where it's really important for our minds that we don't – because when you become the age of 65 – 
you get really used to your routines and your ways of doing things. So you don't actually need to use that much brain power. Whereas when you're six years old and you walk through a supermarket, you're processing so much more information. Mm. And the important thing is actually realizing that we shouldn't completely say 100% this is going to happen or 100% that is going to happen. We need to actually be a little bit open to say for change. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, you brush your teeth with your other hand for 30 days straight just to get used to something else. But, yeah, we can't close the door completely on blockchain if you're full Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, you never know what's going to happen. That's the thing. Like the one thing that I've learned in my life is that whenever I've put myself in a position, like whenever I've nailed my flag to the wall and said, this is right, this is the position and there's no way anything else is is right, generally I get proven wrong within, you know, like not very long at all. And generally often it's me coming to the realisation that I was wrong. The problem is if you nail your flag to the wall publicly and completely discount any other possibility, it, it's very hard for you to recant that and it's very hard mm. for you to, you almost get blinkers, you know, and you, and mm. you, and you start instead of, taking on new information and processing and looking at, uh, looking at it objectively, you start trying to fit that information into your bias mm, and you filter that yeah. through your bias. And, and you know, we've seen that with all sorts of different perspectives. We have the exact same thing with Ripple, for example. I mean, both of us are yep. very adamantly against Ripple. But in the same way, we started to say more recently, like, oh, we could be wrong, but we're still against mm. it. But, I mean, yep. we need to be open to be wrong. Yeah, exactly. Like there's no – I think I've said this a few times before, but the only barrier to truth is the assumption you already have it. We just got a bit way too philosophical we for did. me. That was, that was <laughs> far too intelligent. Yikes. To bring us ah, back to a, a different topic then that we're going to find very hard to philosophize, uh, the entire semiconductor market has just suffered the worst downturn <laughs> in a decade. What a segue. So, yeah, global chip sales fell from $101.2 billion in the first quarter of 2019 down from $116 billion in uh, the same quarter of the previous year. So that represents the largest year-on-year -year decrease in global chip sales sales since the depths of the Great Recession, according to IHS Market. Mm, the largest uh, hit was Samsung, whose sales fell 34% year-on-year as the bottom fell out of both the NAND and DRAM markets. Now, NAND and DRAM are essentially types of uh, storage that are in a lot of phones wow. particularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing is there are so many different big like words that they use for things, DRAM, dynamic random access memory, and NAND, which I don't even want to know what that means but mm. yeah so prices on both of those components have improved dramatically and memory chips though were responsible for most of the plunge according to ihs so remove their impact uh remove the impact of memory chips and sales fell by five percent but yeah the dismal plunge was caused by a number of factors including falling demand in major markets mm. so interesting yeah it may, look it's probably just a cooling off in the in the rapid increase in the tech sector, I mean, I'm sure a lot of this was driven by servers and the rise of um, data centers and all that kind of stuff as well. So, And maybe it's just like, look, we ordered our new computers last year and those computers from two years ago are actually just as good, so we don't need to replace them yet. Yeah, I mean, probably, and look, phones, I guess, too. Like, I mean, I've now, the phone I've got, I've been using for over three years and I don't have any compulsion to, to get a new one because it does everything I want it to do. This is actually such a good problem that, 
you just mentioned that strikes at the heart of this whole what is it the what what's that theory that doubles the the, the oh, Moore's process? law yeah that yeah. this this goes in the heart of Moore's law right Moore's law says that what processing the what is it again it's the the density compute power I think yeah like, yeah so yeah. the compute power doubles every year however I haven't seen the demand for computing double every year like. The people who went on Facebook last year and just browsed Facebook on their laptops all last year isn't going to double. Mm. Like video editors, sure, they, the people who edit videos want to be able to edit more like higher quality video, but maybe people don't actually need all that processing power. Yeah, like we've seen the cost of it as well with um, – we haven't even covered it this episode, but Intel have had a number of breaches – and security flaws exposed in this last year or so. Mm. And it's kind of come out that essentially to, in order to keep up with AMD, who've been pushing them very hard these last couple of years, and I think just this last quarter they basically doubled Intel's total sales for processing units, they were making all these sacrifices because they couldn't, they were struggling to get the technology to go down any smaller, like in the nanometer mm. scale that... I think they're at 14, whereas AMD are at like 10 or 7 or something. And so to, to, to essentially bridge the gap, they made all these security, uh, what's the word? Like they, they basically compromised several parts of the security on the architecture mm. so that the processing wouldn't need to go to that and could just go to the actual task that, that it was getting asked to do. And now there's all these speculative vulnerabilities that have come out and, and it's looking like, try as Intel might to meet Moore's law, and AMD is similar, they're not able to because it's just the, the sacrifices they're having to make in terms of security are too high. Wait, what was that nanometer number you just mentioned? Did you just say 14 nanometers? 14, I think. Can we just was- can we just like think about that a second? Like, So I just Googled this because this boggles my mind. I don't know what a nanometer is, but a sheet of paper is about 100,000 nanometers thick. A strand of human DNA is 2.5 nanometers in diameter. Mm. So if Intel are fitting things 14 nanometers apart... Well, AMD is, are about to bring out a 7 nanometer one. This is insane. So that means <laughs> 2.55... So three strands of human DNA will be yeah. the same width as one of, like, the gap between... That's insanely small. A human... Like, mm. what? There are 25 million 400,000 nanometers an inch. A human hair is 80,000 nanometers wide. <laughs> and AMD are making something that's... What did you say it was? I think it's seven. I, I think... Pretty sure they're looking at seven nanometer chips. I could be wrong. That actually fully disgusts me. Like, we shouldn't make yeah. things that small. That's crazy. Oh, it's unreal. And... Huh. Yeah, I mean, but but that's what's driven like our ability to meet Moore's law has just been going smaller and smaller. That's all it's been. Oh, we it's need to chill been... out. That's what I said. We need to <laughs> chill the f out. Yeah, I look, biotech is the next. Well, we haven't even talked about this at all. But it's funny that you mentioned human DNA because that's that seems to be the narrative now around how we get to the next computing revolution. I guess you'd say is that we're going to have to start looking at organic routes because we're almost reaching the limit of our technological routes. Now, it's funny that you say that we haven't mentioned that, but back in episode 31, we actually discovered um, Microsoft using organic DNA to store data. And this is not a new idea. So, yeah, just thought I'd uh, add that into the mix. This is um, too small, dude. We need to... Like what? We don't... there's, There's like an entire universe out there. We do not need to get any smaller. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, look, I mean, we don't even need to get into the fact that theoretically, if you go too small, everything loses locality and it's everywhere at once. Okay, so I don't like really, you. Yeah, no, you don't need to red pill me there. You don't want to get but into quantum physics. We covered just last episode how you could fit a whole terabyte into an SD card. <laughs> Like, this is getting insanely cool. Yeah, it's unreal. We need to talk about all this sometime soon too. So, yeah, anyway, if you're listening, just strap yourself in. This is freaking wild. And we're only in 2019. So, speaking of that, Rolls-Royce is actually gunning for the electric airplane speed record. (laughs) Yeah, so when most people think of Rolls-Royce, they think of like ultra-luxury cars, but not usually airplanes. Mm, But a separate... Rolls-Royce, spun off from the automaker in 1971, makes aircraft engines. And that company plans to go electric in tackling the world speed record for electric airplanes. Yeah, so the company's built an all-new airplane called Axel, um, accelerating electrification of flight to tackle the speed record attempt sometime in 2020. So the Excel project is part of a European Commission effort to clean up emissions from air travel by 2050. The plane and the record attempt are part of a movement expanding electric car technologies to the skies, including electrifying helicopters and entire airlines. And long-haul flight is likely to take longer for electrification to take over. The Axel will use three electric motors that produce a combined 500 horsepower and they drive a low rpm propeller designed to reduce noise and vibration and Rolls-Royce say the powertrain is 90% efficient which is crazy the Mm. motors and the controller are made by Yasser and Rolls is working with a startup electric aircraft maker Electroflight for the record attempt so they're pairing the motor uh, with a 650 volt battery pack with 6,000 cells and liquid cooling designed to withstand constant maximum loads during the record attempt Um, They don't cite the kilowatt hour capacity in the article, so we're not sure about that. Now, Rolls-Royce doesn't just want to beat the speed of electric flight, uh, the the record that was set of 210 miles an hour by Siemens in 2017. It wants to shatter it. So the company hopes that the Axel will top 300 miles per hour after it takes off on its record attempt at Gloucester Airport outside of Cheltenham in England next year. So, yeah, in the meantime, they're going to cu- conduct flight trials throughout the year, working up to the speed record. So, uh, yeah, really interesting to see if they can, so they can get cool. the planes going that quick. Yeah. How good. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. And that's it for the news. Hmm. Wherever you're joining us from, it's a pleasure having you here. Why not drop into our Telegram channel and say hello, FOMO.show slash Telegram. Okay, so in our privacy and security segment this week, we are going to talk about Unroll.me. Now, what's Unroll.me, Joe? So Unroll.me uh, bills, to, uh, they aim to clean up your inbox. So if you made the unfortunate habit of giving out your email address to sign up to certain thingamajigs, with this tool, you can see a list of all your subscription emails and you can unsubscribe easily from the stuff that you don't want. Now, this actually sounds awesome for me because my main inbox, I um, have a number of different emails that come into that inbox. And over time, without even noticing it, I have signed up for a few different things that weren't really even necessarily spam, but they're just things I haven't been that interested in over time. And so the emails that actually mean something get lost sometimes Mm. in all these other different emails. And this would be a great tool just to go through everything, unsubscribe from the things I don't need and just keep what I do need. Yeah. So... 
Now, they do have a bit of a privacy policy for this service, but you can sign up with Google or your Yahoo, Outlook or AOL accounts and it will basically, it will detect all the things you signed up for and let you unsubscribe from them either in bulk or one by one. Yeah, now obviously this is up to your choice and you, and you do have to be a little bit cautious with this because you're giving another company access to your inbox which could potentially have a lot of sensitive information in it, uh, different verification codes. As I, uh, I mean, I'd probably recommend if you do use this to change your password straight afterwards and try and get these guys back out. But it's it's if, if this is a big problem for you and you're not that concerned about these guys having access in some way to your inbox, then... You know what? Forget that. I am going to be the FOMO show test dummy and I'm going to give away my Google account to them and get started. Okay. Sign in with Google. I am your guinea pig. Continue. Yes. Give me a second. Read, compose, send and permanently delete all your email from Gmail. Hmm. Allow. This is what I do in the name of science, my... Dear subscribers, okay, let's go. Got it. Unsubscribe, unsubscribe from anything and a click. Click. Okay, cool. Got it. They are reading every single email I've ever sent. Lovely. We found 13 email subscriptions in your inbox. Keep them or toss them. You decide. Start editing. Edit your subscriptions. One is PayPal, one is Uber, one is Skype. So they offer to basically roll up all of these different services into one digest. So it's offered to take my PayPal, my Uber, and my Amazon.co.uk into one daily digest. Cool. It's also got a credit card company, an insurance company, an exchange, a company that I own shares in. Huh. It's kind of interesting. So now I don't sign up to many places with this email address, but interesting. Very interesting. So have you gone through the process? Like have you have you unsubscribed from anything? I haven't unsubscribed from anything because I don't want to uh, unsubscribe from them, but it makes it really easy to do it. Cool. Well, there you go. That's unroll.me. Anyway, let's jump onto the main feature because it's taken way too long. Let's do this. So what's going on in geopolitics? Yeah, we're starting a series on geopolitics and all the some various facets of it that really interest us from tech to investment to trade wars, which is what we're going to be talking about this week. If you've been paying attention to some of the news recently, China, America, Africa, Russia, India, they've all been pretty involved in the last fortnight. So US versus Mexico, you may have heard a bit about this recently. Yeah, so Trump has actually threatened a 5% tariff on Mexican goods unless they sort out their illegal immigration problems. So. Now, yeah, now Trump actually then hailed a deal on migrants with the Mexican government to avoid the tariff. So he hailed a deal which he reached with Mexico to help stem the flow of migrants to the United States after he threatened to impose these crazy tariffs. Now, under the deal, Mexico agreed to take unprecedented steps and they, they'll try very hard, in Trump's words, to make that happen. So, yeah. Now, there were fears that the tariffs could hurt US businesses and consumers, but under Trump's proposal, duties would have risen by 5% every month on goods, including cans, beer, tequila, fruit, and vegetables until they hit 25% in October. 
The thing that obviously confuses me about all this, um, I don't know about you, Joe, is that the moment you start reading about tariffs and the different issues with them, you, it, it becomes pretty apparent that the people who feel the effects aren't just the people from the country that are getting tariffed. They're also the consumers in the, mm. the country where the products are being sold, aren't they? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's very much true, but mm. I guess it's that of sort of protectionist yeah. angle that, 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 yeah, I mean, when Trump went into his campaign to become president, it was all about protectionism. It was about putting up tariffs on these different countries and starting trade wars to get America's fair share is what they were saying. Mm. And now it's, it's funny that you would mention protectionism because it's somewhat of a do what I say, not what I do when that, as far as that goes, because on one hand, the US are talking about protectionism and looking after the home and US interests at home and all that kind of stuff. But then the very next breath, the protectionism also seems to extend to everyone else's country and everyone else's borders and geopolitics. And we're seeing that very much so with the trade wars that are very much kicking off between the US and China. Yeah. Now, just as a background, if you don't know what protectionism is, basically the practice of shielding your domestic industry from foreign competition by taxing imports. Now, it's it's what's known as like there, there are a bunch of different economic schools of thought and you can get 20 opinions from 20 different places. But essentially, if you think importing things from China is bad from your country, you tax stuff on China and then that will have a massive impact on that stuff. But um, yeah, interestingly, yeah, the US have been kicking off this trade war with China, which you almost certainly have heard of. And as part of that trade war, um, China have, well, not really as part of that trade war, but as part of the backdrop to this uh, current trade war, China have been pouring a lot of investment uh, into a number of different countries as part of a, a number of different initiatives, and we'll talk about some of these. But one of the places that they've really been focusing on since basically about 1980 is Africa. Yeah, so in 1980, the total China-Africa trade volume was about a billion US dollars. In 1999... It was, so what's that, 20 years later, it was 6.5 billion. And in 2000, it was 10 billion. So it, it's, it's really been ramping up at an exponential rate. And by 2005, the total China-African trade had reached $39.7 billion before eventually ending up at about $55 billion the next year. So it, it has been rapidly increasing. And in the first two months of 2012, it was up to... $163.9 billion. That is absolutely crazy. So, so yeah, there's like China have been pivoting to Africa and there's a huge amount of trade between those, uh, between the, the, the continents. I mean, yeah, in 2015, Chinese President Xi Jinping pledged over $60 billion uh, in a three-year deal in loans and assistance to the African continent. So this is to support factories, manufacturing goods for exports, along with roads, ports. Uh, the Nigerian president showed his desire to finish a stalled railway project across the coastline, specifically a 1,400-kilometre railway from Lagos to Calabar, which represented apparently 200,000 jobs. Yes, there's been a real focus here from China to fund uh, public works in Africa fund a number of these governments and kind of oil the all the pockets of a number of these powerful people and really ingrain themselves in the African continent from around the turn of the century. And they actually built the African Union headquarters, which is a 100-metre tall building in Addis Ababa, 
in Ethiopia, which was inaugurated back in 2012. Now, this building cost 200 million US dollars. And in January 2018, this is really interesting, reports came out that claimed the Chinese had built bugs into this building, spying on the African Union and and on the progress and different things. So this came out in Le Monde, uh, confirmed by the Financial Times. And basically, they discovered in early 2017, so... Five odd years after the building had been completed, that every night um, the computer systems were connecting to Shanghai servers, uploading their files as well as recordings from these microphones embedded both in the walls and the furniture. So it was a bit embarrassing. Then the computings, the computer systems in the building were removed, the bugs were taken out, and the African Union refused a Chinese offer to configure the replacements. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that they, like, after that was found out? They actually had the goal to offer to, to to help with the new system. How crazy. Oh, man. I mean, we laugh, but our governments are doing the exact same thing yeah. in buildings they fund. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, it, it's, it, it has um, it has obviously signposted the fact that China want to be involved very heavily in Africa and in this ANU. Now, um, for just for the listeners that aren't that familiar with the ANU, what exactly are they? I mean, are, are they – similar to like the European Union for Africa or do they have some differences? Oh, I have a rough idea, but I don't actually know a huge amount. Okay. So the African Union is, um, it consists of 55 member states um, across Africa. And and yeah, basically it was founded in 2001 in uh, Ethiopia in Addis Ababa. And yeah, it's basically, it's, it's aimed at uniting the different countries in Africa to be able to make decisions more efficiently and to be able to govern effectively for such a large space. The GDP is about $5 trillion. There's just over a billion people there and the area is around 29 million kilometres squared. Mm, so it's like a collective it's like a collective bargaining um, mm. arrangement then for them mm. to bargain on the world stage. Um, I mean, in connection with that... Uh, the Chinese company Huawei or Huawei or however people people want to say it, um, they're promoting uh, a, a number of smart city initiatives in Africa. Yeah, so the, yeah, the, the Chinese company is already just deploying smart tech in in some cities in Kenya, Nigeria, and Botswana, um, according to Lane. And yeah, this can be used to better monitor environmental resources and improve this quote unquote sustainability, a uh, big buzzword, of mm. cities. And yeah, um, a bunch of different innovations to improve safety and all that sort of stuff. But it's not going to surprise me if they don't start pushing the five G side of things here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, it, it it seems like in general China are really starting to kickstart a more technological Africa, aren't they? They they're really trying to build all the frameworks and almost jump Africa forward mm. in a number of ways, mm. so they can catch up on the world stage. And when they catch up, they will help China and be very, very indebted to China. I mean, Huawei have been banned from uh, America and a few other countries, so. Uh, doesn't surprise me they've now got more effort to focus in uh, in the african continent now you sent a really interesting link, link this week um about a uh, a, a chinese uh, military base in djibouti which was only 12 kilometers from the u.s the u.s's main base in africa so if you're looking for a really interesting read i'd recommend this one it caught my eye and i had an awesome time reading it because it covered on something that we really don't hear about much 
in our Western media, and that's that um, Chinese and U.S. armies are actually fortifying this tiny African country, and there, there's some serious military hardware going down in this in this area in this little country, and uh, they're only the bases are only about twelve kilometers apart now. The reason they're fortifying there is because it's a very, very strategic position. Yeah, so from this piece, it was called Passing the Red Sea, Why the Chinese and U.S. Armies are Fortifying the Djibouti, the Tiny African Country. Now, they were saying, yeah, in this hot and arid corner of the Horn of Africa, thousands of U.S. and Chinese soldiers are deployed at heavily guarded bases just a few kilometers from each other. Now, Djibouti dominates access to Bab el-Mandeb, the Gate of Tears in Arabic, which is a crucial choke point to the entrance of the Red Sea, only 25 kilometers wide at its narrowest point. And it commands access to the Suez Canal shipping route that connects Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, and is the only place in the world where Beijing and Washington have large-scale military bases so close together. Yeah, and look, and for those of you that aren't aware, the Suez Canal is basically the only reason that ships don't have to go all the way around Africa when they're trying to get from, say, China over to Europe or China over to America because the Suez Canal essentially cuts through the it's gap like in between. Egypt and Israel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the gap between Africa and Europe um, or Africa and minor, Asia Minor, depending on how you, how you want to look at it. But, yeah, before there was a Suez Canal, journeys were very, very, very long. Um, the, the Suez Canal cut huge amounts of time off the journeys uh, that ships used to t- have to take to get from you know, the, the old world to the new world and, and vice versa. So it's a very, very crucial shipping port and shipping lane and strategic position for the two. Sorry, it was through Egypt and not through Israel. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a very, very strategic point for the two uh, world superpowers and empires. So, yeah, these tensions between China and the US have been rising. You would have heard of this already, but Beijing has complained of spying by low-flying US aircraft near the Chinese base, while Washington is alleging that the Chinese have taken unauthorized photos of US warships and even shone lasers into the eyes of US pilots to blind them temporarily. Yeah, right. So the old schoolboy trick of shining lasers into into vehicles. You will not fly here. <laughs> uh, so US General has actually estimated that 98% of supplies for US military operations in East Africa go through the nearby point. And he said that if we were denied access or had limited access, it would have a significant impact on our activities in East Africa. And that's describing the the port access as a strategic imperative for the United States. Mm. Now, China's dramatically expanded its military presence in Africa in recent years. So they've launched a number of naval patrols, military training programs, exchanges, so sending military officers to another um, country and vice versa to train each other on different skills, port visits, anti-piracy operations and joint exercises. So last year alone, the People's Liberation Army, as they call it, um, conducting drills in Nigeria, Cameroon, Ghana, and Gabon. And it's sharply increased their contributions to the United Nations peacekeeping operations, sending about 2,500 Chinese troops to serve in US missions in Africa. 
So Tron originally portrayed its base in Djibouti as merely a logistics base to support its peacekeepers and anti-piracy operations. Uh, but it's increasingly clear that the base is much more than that. It protects Chinese interests in the region, including the crucial sea lanes that carry over half of China's oil supplies. Wow. Yeah, so this base enables them to project their force and protect their people, so they say, supply chains and other interests in Africa and along their maritime Silk Road across the Indian Ocean. So this is according to a Canadian analyst, Michael Kovrig, last October. Um, yeah, and that was only a few weeks before he was arrested by Chinese police during that dispute between Canada and China. Yeah, right. Okay. Now, China, like the United States, they've got an unofficial purpose for their military base. That's to expand their geopolitical influence in a global hotspot at the intersection of Africa and the Middle East. So it's basically the two superpowers under the auspices of, you know, having a logistical centre for their operations, mm. flexing flexing their muscles a little bit and making sure they're keeping the other the other in check in the African region. But it's really interesting looking at a lot of the ways that China are essentially mirroring very similarly to what the US did back in the day, you know, back when the US was really starting to appear on the world stage mm. and they went from isolationist to very much an empire they're doing all the similar things. It's, it's a very important location, though. I mean, if all of the, like so much of their shipping goes through this route, mm. it's very important to them. And then the US, as soon as they found out that China was there, they doubled the amount that they were paying in rent. Wow. Voluntarily. Yeah, they doubled, like, I think it was more than doubled. Yeah, they doubled the amount that they were paying in rent. They spent a billion US dollars extra in um, upgrading the base. It was absolutely crazy. I mean, because there's a big port here and most of the U.S. supplies to the U.S. base come through this port of Djibouti. Now, if the Chinese, for example, were to send their troops, although it would be very stupid to do so, if they were to send their troops to take over the port of Djibouti, they could actually cut off this U.S. base, which would cut off drone strikes, which most of the U.S. drone strikes that happen in Africa, Somalia, Yemen, etc., etc., happen from this base in Djibouti because it's such a good location for taking both part of the Middle East and also Africa as far as drone strikes. If China were to take this base just a few kilometers from them, they could cut off a lot of U.S potential mm. so it's dangerous yeah it sounds like a powder keg doesn't it, it sounds mm. like something that could be ready to erupt so um i guess in in line with that there's also been a, a essentially like a, a subsequent russia china tightening uh they've, they've been drawing closer together the two nations and there have been a number of diplomatic envoys and talking about best friends and a number of different things yeah. which have essentially come on the heels of this Cold War almost between the US and China. Yeah, so China's Xi Jinping, he actually went to visit Russia recently and he praised Putin as being his best friend. Now, China-US relations have been going down a little bit, but Russia actually pivoted towards China years ago, back when the Ukraine crisis was happening, because it was clear that the US wasn't helping them. So they pivoted to China and, yeah, it sounds pretty insane. Do you think that um, Xi Jinping has, when, like when he puts in security questions, when he's signing up for stuff and it asks for your best friend's name, do you think that's who he puts in, Putin? Childhood best friend, Vladimir, yeah. Vladimir Putin? <laughs> yes. Yeah, probably. 
<laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry to derail things. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's funny, isn't it, when you see stuff like that? Um, the two sides have signed a package of trade deals, and uh, Mr. Z also unveiled two pandas for the Moscow Zoo. Fantastic! Recently. Look at that. Look Presents at that. for his best friend. Mm. Yeah, they've basically been making all these public overtures to each other. You know, saying yeah, they've met all these different times, and they've been friends all these different times, and there seems to be a real warmness at the moment between China's relations and Russia's relations. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's a close relationship as far as gas imports. Russia sent mm. a lot of gas and uh, energy to China, and it's very important for China's energy security. Mm. But yeah, as Xi Jinping was saying, in the past six years, they've met nearly thirty times, and yeah, he said. Uh, Russia is a country I've visited the most times and President Putin is my best friend and colleague. <laughs> mm, High go. fives all around. <laughs> it's funny though, isn't it? Because I remember reading a lot of commentary on this stuff about 10, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Mm. And there, there seemed to be a real hope from Western analysts that because Russia and China are essentially right next to each other, at least part yeah. of Russia is next to China, that they'd almost keep each other in check in a way mm. because you've got two different ideologies and, you know, Russia had obviously just come out of the USSR days and there was a real hope that relations would go poorly because of that border tension. But it seems like the, the opposite's happening and the antagonism – from the US has caused them to move closer together. Yeah, I mean, the first big one is that Huawei have signed a deal with the Russian telecoms firm um, MTS to develop 5G tech in Russia. They're going to be developing 5G networks over the next year. And that if knowledge of Chinese construction is anything to go by, they build very quickly. Mm. Mm. That's basically a big counterpoint to what's been happening in a lot of these Western countries, including here in Australia, where... Huawei and a number of other Chinese firms are being blocked from building things because they potentially pose a national security risk, which, I mean, it is hard to argue sometimes when you read some of those stories from Africa and the bugging of the African buildings and you know, different things that have gone into the port. So it's, it's not entirely unfounded that there yeah. may be some backdoors being built into some of those technologies, mm. but it hasn't helped. And what else have Russia been doing in relation to China? So one of the consequences of this ongoing trade war with the US is that US used to export a number of like premium goods to China. So from, from meat, uh, there are other vegetables and fruits and all sorts of different things like that that went to China and Chinese would buy them because they're from the US. And mm. we have a similar thing here in Australia where a lot of Australian beef goes over to China because China Chinese apparently love Australian beef and will pay a premium for it. But with the US pulling back and there being new tariffs and um, the government mandating that certain things can't be exported, it's mm. left a big gap. And mm. Russia has said, well, okay, we'll, we'll step into that gap then and we'll fill that need. So the Cherkizovod group, the, which is the largest meat producer in Russia, they began shipping poultry products to China last month and they're now looking forward to selling pork and soybeans there, according to the CEO. Now, as the world's biggest producer of con and consumer of pork, China's been turning to other types of protein, locally produced, imported. There's been African swine fever outbreaks across the world, uh, which began last year. But it's worth mentioning just very briefly that since uh, in the last few years, Russia have been upping their grain exports and they've actually completely set a law to say zero GMO in Russia. So Russia is actually trying to position itself as the one country where you can get food from that has zero GMOs. Wow. Okay. And that may be 
well, we'll see, but that might be important down the line because there's there's rumblings of potential new diseases and new issues with some of these GMO crops coming out that could cause big issues for a lot mm. of the farmers that are mm. using that in the future. So, mm. yeah, very interesting there. And, I mean, I guess as a, as a part of that and the African swine fever that's been going on, their production of pork, and pork's a big stable in the Chinese diet, is expected to drop by 30%. This wow. year of the epidemic. So Russia are quite well positioned to maybe fill that gap and permanently fill it if they if they keep exporting a lot of this stuff. Mm. Mm. Uh, so what else is going on between Russia and China? So Russia seemed to be keen on selling uh, yuan bonds to deepen their ties with China and further reduce their dependence on the US dollar. So this is coming out of the South China Morning Post. But yeah, Russia's looking at selling yuan bonds to, to strengthen their ties with China. And basically, uh, they would list it uh, their sovereign bonds in yuan uh, on a Moscow exchange. And China are actually considering selling a government bond in rubles so that people from China can buy Russian bonds and, and people from Russia can buy Chinese bonds. Mm, and bonds are a really good tool and they've been used by governments for a long time to kind of lock people in and, and incentivize people to ensure that those bonds do well over time. Um, so by having a, a Chinese bond listed on a Mos- Moscow exchange and vice versa, it could potentially – contribute to investors maybe looking at investing in other things Mm. that are from those countries as well and pulling those two countries even closer together financially. Now, interestingly, just to hype things up a little bit more, coming out of Reuters, the United States are looking to sell 34-plus surveillance drones to their allies in the South China Sea region. So, yeah, the Trump administration moving ahead with the surveillance drone sale to four U.S. allies, saying that they'll no longer tiptoe around the Chinese behavior in Asia. Yeah, and 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 the um and the US hasn't directly named China as um when they're making accusations of actors destabilizing the region, but um they've it's basically been implicit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who else could it be really? And so they've basically announced that they're going to sell these thirty four scan angle drones made by Boeing to the governments of Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam uh, for a total of forty seven million dollars. Yes, so China claims almost all of the strategic South China Sea and frequently they take the mick out of the United States and they actually attack them um, verbally and their friends over naval operations near these occupied islands. Now, there are competing claims from Brunei, Indonesia, Malaysia and the Philippines, but it's a bit of a powder keg because Mm. the area is historically, China have a bit of a claim to it, but they seem to be asserting it quite strongly. Mm, mm. And it's 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 almost like this Cold War situation again, you know, like something like Cuba and and the, and the seas around it. And you, you can begin to see this axis forming, can't you? Like these, these two axes, you've got the Western axis with NATO and all the different allies dotted around and I guess Australia is a part of that as well. Mm. And then you've got this Chinese axis, which is starting to emerge, which is China, Russia, you've got the African nations who are now very, very indebted to China. Um, you've got mm. ports going up, which we'll cover soon in relation to the um, the Belt and Road or the Silk, the new Silk Road that China are building. There's a, a real clamoring here by this other axis to essentially build 
and place new areas that access access around the world. Mm, mm, absolutely. And so in line with that, um, Russia and China, apart from everything else they're doing with each other, uh, they're also moved to develop an Arctic trade route. The focus of what they're calling the Maritime Arctic Transport Joint Venture is to manage an ice-breaking tanker fleet of Arctic ice-class vessels comprising existing and new vessels and engaging them to transport LNG or natural gas uh, along the top, basically above above there, above Europe, around the side of Europe on the east down into China. From the sounds of it, China and, and Russia look to be working together to get this Northern Sea route in order to be, yeah transporting uh, liquid natural gas effectively around the world. Yeah, because, I mean, at the moment, their LNG either has to go over road or over rail, which is quite difficult up in Russia, or it's got to go via the shipping routes, um, so coming out of uh, the seas down in the bottom of Russia and then down through the Suez Canal and back out over towards China. But this way, basically by having these big LNG tankers which are which are ice rated that's the big difference here so you can't have an all year round sea route without having ice rated ships because the whole thing freezes over during the winter and so they're getting these new ships that are ice rated and that means that Russia will be able to ch- supply China's LNG needs which is very very big China needs a lot of uh, liquid natural gas basically completely independent of any other country because it will literally just go from Russia to China mm. via the Northern Sea Route. And they're calling that the Polar Silk Road, which is quite interesting. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, you've also got the US and India. Uh, Narendra Modi just got re-elected in India um, in a massive win. He got 30-something percent of the vote in such mm. a big country. But, yeah, and then, what, Trump just the other week threatened to, to go after India in a trade war and India sort of backed down a little bit and said, look, we're not trying to get into a war at all here. We just want to get along. And, yeah. <laughs> so. it's, it's, in, it's interesting too, isn't it? Because, I mean, India is traditionally has been a lot more Western focused, I guess. Mm, mm. And they're looking at China thinking that, you know, they're, they're probably going to have to deal with China Uh, in the not-too-distant future, and they're not making a lot of these deals that Russia are making. They seem to be a lot more Western-focused with most of their deals. Yeah, correct. Yeah, well, I mean, India are are anti-China in quite a few ways. I mean, there have been some border disputes that we've heard about uh, in the last few years. There have been some very small sort of standoffs every now and then, but these have the potential to to, to escalate. Mm, Exactly. And there was news recently... um, that uh, Modi had actually moved to build a basically like a coastal surveillance network in the Maldives, which is wow. basically in that South China Sea disputed region. So they 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 are seeming to now to be starting to make deals with a number of these countries to mm. exert their own influence uh, in the South China Sea as well. So mm. when you talk about a powder keg, you're completely right. Um, it seems like this region is becoming very much the focal point. Uh, as long as that, as long along with Africa, for potential issues down the line in the not too distant future. So, what's going on with this Chinese Silk Road that goes from China through to Europe? Yeah, so this has been a trend we've been tracking for quite a while, and you'll be able to go back through some of our episodes and see that we've touched on it every now and then. But China are basically looking to revitalise what they're calling their ancient Silk Road. So far back in the in the in medieval times, and even further back, 
there was some very, very well-trodden trade routes between China and Europe. And a lot of silk used to pass from China to Europe and the merchants that were going to Europe would bring all sorts of back, stuff back to China. Mm. As the empires in China decayed and it kind of fell away, China became this almost like locked off nation and the Silk Road shut down and all the different towns along that road, a lot of them just couldn't. I mean, the whole livelihood was based around the trade and they just fell away. So there's some really interesting history there, but they've basically, China came out and said, I think around about 10 years ago, they wanted to revitalize that mm. and they wanted to build a global trade network and use all their newfound wealth to essentially fund a whole bunch of different, not only seaports, but also land ports. So very high speed rail networks. Mm. They essentially have built some of these huge, they look like seaports when you see them, but they're actually designed to take cargo on and off trains in places like mm. Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. There's another one in Germany. There's a whole bunch of different things going on. Yeah, so there's a massive focus on on trade and uh, I'm really excited to invest in any of these different countries that are connected to this. Like it's, it seems like such a massive vision what they have here. Yeah, and they've, they've been lending a lot of money too. There's been a number of loans going out to different countries to build ports that are essentially contracted to be a part of this network. And between 1980 and 2000, more than 184 new ports were built to advance China's progress. And wow. I think that, that number is probably... Uh, significantly increased even since then because this is the interesting thing about China is that they build very much for the long term. You know, we in our Western world, we're used to three or four year democratic cycles and governments generally have a lot more shorter agenda. Whereas China, as early as the 1970s, were basically saying that this was going to be part of their policy, rebuilding the old Chinese trade routes and connecting the world to their ports. And They've done that for the last 40 years. Yeah, I mean, China, they, they, they had a bunch of different joint ventures that have been happening recently with foreign firms, non-Chinese, that could provide cash to build these ports that could actually operate really efficiently. So they, this is British companies, Danish companies, American companies, and even the Port of Singapore Authority, which mm. is pretty crazy. Yeah, and look, these Chinese shipping corporations have essentially become global by teaming up with global firms. Um, they've got the China Merchants Port Holding and in collaboration with these foreign companies, these firms are now building ports and container terminals overseas as far as the mm. US and as near as Taiwan. So they're involved not only in the funding but also a lot of the construction that's going on in these ports. Like there's a huge amount of interesting stuff like in Sri Lanka, for example, they – there were some inefficient state-owned companies that ran both of the ports in Sri Lanka, but then Chinese companies came in, started developing them. There's a bit of controversy, but yeah, they made this huge investments in other places, including in um, the western tip of Myanmar. And yeah, they've they've just been building and building and building, which is pretty crazy. And there's even a German inland port of Duisburg, uh, which has become basically one of it's become Europe's main logistics hub, and they're calling it Germany's China City. And Duisburg is actually the first European stop of some eighty percent of trains running from China to Europe. So. It's an incredibly vital port and the amount of Chinese money that's flown into that is immense. But look, we've like we could talk on and on and on about the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I've literally got a Feedly channel just dedicated to 
the Belt and Road, like Silk Road Initiative, because there's that much news coming out of it every day. But we found a great little article that kind of summarizes a lot of what's gone on in the last 20 or 30 years. So we'll link that in the show notes. Um, definitely worth checking that out. But mm. basically, like China's increasing their reach throughout the world, both overtly through state-sponsored measures, which we've talked about, and covertly through proxy companies, which are effectively extensions of the state. But I guess the big question is, Joe, like what does that all mean for the future then? What does it mean for the future? I mean, there's a few different pressures. I mean, there's a huge amount of money that China have invested here. So people are going to have to pay back these loans, right? Mm. Uh, what are the sort of things that you're seeing that, that are there? These loans are essentially like strings. And I can guarantee you China is going to be calling these in at once, at some, mm. one stage or another. And the question is then what does that mean when, when, a, when a country like this starts to exert that pressure, I think what you're going to see is a number of these countries and companies that have dealt with China will have to start leaning more towards China in a geopolitical sphere because at the end of the day, China are the debtor. And if you owe a lot of money to someone, you will do whatever you can to make sure that mm. that country continues to, or that debtor continues to give you favourable terms, particularly because you, you have an international law obligation to them to repay the debt. So there's a bit of a sort of a – it's a bit of a Trojan horse, to be honest. Mm. I mean, it could potentially open, you know, to, to Chinese companies being able to jo jump into these economies or, you know, even, you know, some sort of social credit system or certain controls on, company, on countries. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, the social credit one's a really interesting one because uh, China – at, at the moment are quite content to govern their country in one way and do business with the international community in a completely different way. I don't really enforce any of their ideologies and practices on other countries uh, using that. But as, I mean, you've seen, you saw it with America, you've seen it with Britain before them, you've seen it with almost every empire that kind of emerges onto the world stage as the dominant empire, either through overt, measures or almost through like osmosis mm. those cultures and and the unique markers of those cultures tend to to creep in to all the other nations mm. and all the other countries and you know who knows i mean it may be that china down the track may require every company that wants to deal with them to have a chinese company incorporated in china mm. and uh have that company have a social credit rating and then, and then, it, and then, it, it's not so much further of a leap than for those companies to start saying, you know, what we might need to start implementing this social credit system with our employees. And then, do we suddenly start implementing that in our countries? And what does that, you know, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that China, who are, I mean, we we moan and complain all the time about the US and the UK and the the, the establishment and all the all the wrong stuff that the US does in their empire, but. For all its flaws, the US has some semblance of a constitution that guarantees certain things and treats people a certain way and there are, there is some internet filters, for example, but it's nowhere near the extent to what mm. the, the extent that China filter their internet and uh, this social credit system is another example, you know. So, yeah, I, I guess a one big thing for us to consider as this goes forward is what does that mean, you know. What does that mean having a, a country that has all of those elements becoming more and more dominant in the world stage? Do they start exerting influence ideologically as well as economically? It's a good question. I guess we'll have to keep an eye out. 
So anyway, that's our first real foray into geopolitics then. There's a whole bunch of other interesting parts that uh, that we, we, we're really keen to talk about and we'll be covering this for a number of episodes. We'll, we'll, mm-hmm. We're not sure yet how many segments we're going to run on it. But, um, yeah, let us know your thoughts. Let us know what you'd like to hear from a geopolitical perspective and if, if there's anything we missed that you'd like us to, to catch up on in another episode. But, uh, yeah, that was really interesting, mate. I, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's fascinating to see what China are doing. All right. This week, we've um, we've had our intrepid reporter, Jordan Cronier, get back in touch with us, and he's he's somewhere else in the world. He's told us that he's, he's moved around again and he's he's found himself in a new place, and he's wanting to discuss his new role at this location that he's ended up in. Huh. Yeah, so I mean, we're going to give him a call, uh, see what he's up to, and hopefully he's keeping himself out of trouble. Uh, hello, yes, sir, yes. Jordan, is that is that you? We got, yeah? This is me. Ah, what's going on? Eh? Oh, Jordan, it's been a while, Jordan. No, everything's everything's good on my end. Yeah, look, look too much has happened. I, you know, it'd probably take us ages to fill you in on it. But yeah, everything's pretty good on on our end. Joe's well as well. He sends his his regards. He couldn't. He this didn't suit him. This phone call, so he wasn't able to check in. But um, yeah, what what have you been? Jordan, how you been? What have you been up to? Uh, well, Matt, I'm in Djibouti. You wouldn't believe it. Huh? I was looking at all those links you're posting in the FOMO right group, and I thought, you know what? Sounds like exactly the place for Jordan Cronia. Yeah? Well, okay, Jordan, so you're in Djibouti, as in the small African country that has a Chinese base and a US base in it. That's that's where you are right now. Well, look, Matt, I've traveled a lot. I've seen a few things. I've been in many tricky situations. I've been in I've been in Venezuela. I've been in South Africa. I've been in a bunch of places. Look, I've seen the world. Huh? So I thought, who's better to help smooth over the political hotbed in Djibouti than Jordan Cronia? Okay, fair, Jordan, fair. So what capacity are you in Djibouti as? Are you working for the government somehow, the Djiboutian government? You know me. I'm a professional negotiator. I'm actually, it's, it's going swimmingly. I'm, I'm part of the first big negotiation. We've been in the room for hours. You have to see it. It's got the US, the China, the Russia, Japan, the whole lot. Everybody is here, you know, and, and, and Jordan Cronier is mediating the dispute, huh? Right, okay. I did hear there had been some tensions there recently, Jordan. So, I mean, what particularly are they negotiating about here? Because I know there's been a number of issues. There's been drone flyovers. There's been allegations of laser lights being pointed in Colt's eyes. I I don't mean to get around the dirty bits, but there has been some disputes about the sewage systems. It's been pretty filthy, you know. It seems like they didn't fully think out where the waste would go, you know, like 10,000 soldiers in a base, you know. Where does it all go when they all defecate? But it's pretty filth, huh? Um, and there's a big argument. Who's, who's in charge of the poop? You know, is it the Russia? Is it the US? Is it China? Is it Djibouti? Like, it's a, it's a lot of different things. The US wants it. Russia wants the US to do it. The US wants China to do it. It's a bit of a, a steaming mess, I think you'd say, huh? Okay, so uh, you're there as a negotiator, but are you... Uh, what kind of capacity are you leading this negotiation? What's going on? Look, I'm mediating on behalf of the Djibouti government, Meta. You know, just just mediating the dispute, huh? Right. Okay. Are you, are you making any headway then, Jordan? Does it, does it feel like you're 
they're reaching a, a point where the parties could agree on how they're going to dispose of this human waste? Uh, well, look, I, th- I, I think, I, yes, I think so, yes. I've been facilitating mediation. I've been, they actually asked me for my recommendations, you know. Oh, really? Okay. So it sounds like they're, they're looking to you for guidance, Jordan, on this because yeah, you do have a lot of experience. So what, what was your recommendation then, Jordan? How did, how did you propose they resolve this? Look, I simply said, look, look, the, the latrine duty is typically, you know, that's the role of the weakest person in the army, you know. If you've got any battalion, the weakest man is the one who, who cleans the toilets. Huh? So naturally, I said, look, you, all you need to do is decide who's the weakest and then you delegate the role of the, the cleaning the latrine to the weakest person. Right, okay. So, and, and person in this context, you obviously mean the weakest nation state, Jordan. Oh, yes, of course, huh? Okay, so hang on, Jordan. Like, let me get this, this straight. So you're right there now in Djibouti negotiating with some of the most powerful people uh, and egotistical people in the room, like macho generals and politicians who are, you know, they've built their careers on this and their reputations on this. And you told them they needed to work out who the weakest was out of all the nations and delegate the job to them. Well, look, yes, Matt, I just referenced history. I am... Jordan, what's... um, What's that in the background? Is that shouting? Oh, look, yes, uh, it, it, it seems that, look, look, the negotiation seems to be going into a bit of a, a deterioration at the moment. That's the general shouting each other, but all good, huh? They're not leaving, you know. Maybe it'll blow over, you know. Okay, look, Jordan, I think you should probably go and if there's anyone to talk to there, maybe talk them down from whatever's going on or if there's not maybe you should um take cover for a while at, at least until this all blows over you've you've probably really done enough uh, jordan is that is that gunfire oh roto no 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 don't fire in and off look mit i have to go it looks like the negotiations have uh, degenerated i'll talk to you soon huh If someone might enjoy this, please feel free to share it with them. You can find us at FOMO.show. You can jump on our telegram at FOMO.show slash telegram. You can follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show. And on YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube. That's it for us here at the FOMO Show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like our show, please do feel free to subscribe in your podcast app of choice or via our YouTube channel. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And as always, remember, no FOMO. Recording. Yes. Episode 46, Get Off My Soapbox. (laughs) And Joe gets personal. Mate, did you know Mm. that we have 34 pages of notes for this episode? No, but I just just learnt that. It is a typical episode for us. Um, Yeah, that that generally is around where we clock in at, isn't it? Mm. I think so. I'm just going to... 
Just spray a little bit of deodorant. Oh, and nice. A little bit less. Yeah. Sweaty. Make yourself feel fancy over the That's internet. That's right. A long day. <laughs> yeah, and obviously yeah. we believe that people should be free, but obviously that's a ridiculous idea. Oh, how dare you, Joe? You disgust me. How Have dare you not heard you? of consent of the governed? Mate. <laughs> right, let's move on before we get arrested. Yep.